0: We think it's a really important signal that the community health workers, as deployed as they are in Brazil, are likely to be very effective here in the UK. And I think things are beginning to change, but really they have to change. We've been traditionally, I think, funding schemes that are easy to do, but not necessarily the right thing to do.
1: This is the National Health Executive Podcast, bringing you views, insight and conversation from leaders across the health sector. Presented by Louis Morris. Joining me today is Dr. Matt Harris, Clinical Senior Lecturer in Public Health at Imperial College London, and Dr. Navchana, who is Chair of the National Association of Primary Care. So, to start with, this came about from a little initiative that you, Matt, brought over from Brazil. And can you just give the listeners a quick rundown of what the initiative is, how it helps, what it does, essentially? Yeah, sure.
0: So this, this stretches out quite some time. I was a GP in Brazil. I qualified here in the UK and then moved to Brazil and re-qualified in medicine there. And went and worked as a GP in their primary care system uh, up in the northeast of Brazil in a very, very poor community called Camarajibi in the state of Pernambuco, where I had 5,000 patients on my list of a single handed GP practice. And I was working there with 40 health workers, uh, which isn't a new. Uh, innovation in any way, community health workers been around for decades. Not just in Brazil, of course, but in China and Ethiopia and India and Nigeria and Pakistan. Many countries have community health workers, and we even have community health workers here. But what was interesting about the way in which they deployed their community health workers um, was that there was a very efficient and effective system that had scaled nationally. It was actually the biggest uh, publicly um, provided, taxpayer-funded, free-free at uh, point of use primary care system in the world now, and they are, they have 275,000 community health workers. So a really really significant primary care innovation. I'll, I'll I'll spend a moment just to talk about what's unique, I think, about the way in which those community health workers are deployed and why that's helpful. The first thing is that the community health workers are recruited from the community; they are residents in the community where they then work. Um, the second thing is that they're paid full time um, and employed by the municipality but integrated into the primary care team so they were very much part of my team as the GP. Um, The the really important feature also is that they cover small areas of around 150 households and they visit every single household in that geography once a month if not more Um, and the other really important feature is that they don't just look at one or two particular clinical areas or age groups or or issue areas, they actually look at the entire household as a whole, and the whole community as a whole. So what you have in Brazil is through the use of community health workers, a really interesting public health model that is proactive uh, by visiting households every month. They can unearth problems that the system isn't aware of. They can detect things that even residents weren't aware of. Um, They cut across both health and social care. They're involved with both individual needs as well as community needs. They can resolve issues in real time by working closely with the primary care team. Um, and in Brazil, they've seen some dramatic population health outcomes as a result of scaling this approach. Um, in municipalities that have a very high penetrance of this system compared to municipalities that don't, there's a 34 percent reduction in cardiovascular disease mortality, um, which I think we think is an extremely powerful Uh, message and learning opportunity for the UK.
1: That's absolutely brilliant. What are some of the things it's done in the UK? I I believe it said it's massively increased immunisation.
0: As with Brazil, the community health workers are really, really good at spotting people that, for example, are eligible for immunisations but haven't yet had them, or for screening or for health checks or for, frankly, any preventative opportunity um by, by getting to know their the families that they that they're responsible for inside and out. And so they have very, very high coverage of of these sorts of preventative services. So we we started piloting it uh, through partners in Westminster and Kensington and Chelsea. Um, about two years ago with just a small number of community health workers but very much modelled on and inspired by the way in which they're deployed in Brazil. So starting in a uh, very deprived council estate called Churchill Gardens in Pimlico, uh, we allocated about 600 households to four community health workers that were recruited from the local community there. And each one goes knocking on the doors of their local residents, checking in on them and just seeing how things are going. And we measured after about the first year or so, what, were, what was the uh, difference in uptake in immunizations, screening and health checks in the households that they had been able to visit compared to the households that they hadn't been able to visit yet. And what we found was that for those people that were eligible for immunizations, they were 47 percent more likely to take them up in the households that uh, had received visits by community health workers. Uh, For screening opportunities like breast, bowel and cervical cancer, they were 82% more likely to take them up. And health checks were three times more likely to be taken up in households that have been visited compared to those that hadn't. Now, this is early findings. Um, There's more work to be done in terms of uh, corroborating this across wider localities where it's spreading and scaling to. But we think it's a really important signal the community health workers, as deployed as they are in Brazil, are very are likely to be very effective here in the UK in terms of improving uptake for important public health pre- preventative opportunities.
1: You mentioned the, I believe, that it's being expanded into other areas. I believe Yorkshire, Cheshire, and Norfolk are some of the areas. Are there any further plans for it to go even further? In
2: addition to the sites that you've already mentioned, uh, there is significant interest. Uh, as you can imagine, having heard um, the, the, the story from Matt here, from a, from a number of areas uh, across England, um, at um, at the last count, we had around 10 additional sites who are either showing interest or wanting more information and wanting to engage more with the programme. Um, I, I would add that, you know, uh, the National Association of Primary Care have got very, very firmly behind this model because we can see... Uh, you know some of the impact that Matt has been talking about, and um, having a, a real solution that perhaps addresses many of the challenges that colleagues are facing, not only in primary care but across other sectors within the within the NHS. For example, uh, secondary care sector, mental health, and community services. And it kind of makes sense because we all share the same patients, and if those patients are coming or from uh, particular areas where there is significant unmet need and community health workers can help in some way um, mitigate that or address that, then I think there'll be a significant impact. I'm hoping from uh, from the evaluation work that Matt and colleagues have been doing to show reductions in demand, not only in primary care, but secondary care.
1: Yeah. Now I believe you were involved from the outset of this programme. I know Matt, you took it back from Brazil or, or here from Brazil. What were the logistics like? What did you have to factor in? Why is the things that worked in Brazil that might not work in England? How did that work? I
2: mean, I've been involved uh, from the very beginning of this project, particularly from when the pilot work had started in in Westminster. And and I and I would I would add that um, I I got involved in this. Or hearing about this just before the pandemic started uh, in the, in this country, so we're we're looking at towards the end of 2019 here, uh, and um, you know I was particularly captivated by the, the the work that Matt has described from Brazil because I look after a population of patients in East Merton where there is significant deprivation, and uh, in my uh, in my professional career as a GP. Health inequalities for those people that I uh, that my practice is uh, is responsible for looking after have got worse, not better over uh, over many many years, and and so I've been looking for solutions that help us really think about how we might address that. And it was sort of serendipitous that I had the conversation with Matt about the work that uh, that's been happening in Brazil. Um, to answer your question, I mean. It, you know, it's not entirely, uh, you know, the, the context in which um, health uh, community health workers are being used in Brazil uh, is very different. Uh, and, and, and the way that the systems work uh, and, you know, the kind of policy landscapes are very different. However, there are significant parallels, particularly around uh, deprived populations. If, I, if I'm right in understanding that, Matt, that we can start to sort of gauge the impact of something like this for those particular populations in need.
1: The main reason why I wanted to get you two on the podcast today is because when I saw this story, it made me think, you know, whenever I read stuff from the government, from different publications, it always seems we want other people to look to us to be like the inspiration for healthcare systems. And yet, this is somewhere in Brazil where we're taking massive inspiration or taking great leaps. Should we be looking more outwardly to other health systems to get inspiration?
0: I would definitely agree with that. Um, and I would say, actually, that sort of in In large part, one of the reasons, notwithstanding many of the technical and practical obstacles and barriers to translating an innovation of this complexity actually into the UK, one of the main barriers that we experienced in the early years, and we've been at this now for probably about 17, 18, 19 years talking about the Brazilian model, is that people just weren't used to yet thinking about Brazil as a a country that we could be learning from. And that really spoke to, I think, tendency in in our culture here and within the UK to think of our system as a gold standard, perhaps it's been universally recognised as such, um, often referred to as a gold standard from elsewhere, but also our gaze tends to very much be looking more towards high income country settings uh, within Europe, within North America, maybe Australia, New Zealand and so on. But very, very rarely do we ever hear about what's going on in South America or even in Africa. And in fact, very more, more likely we think of any country in Africa as being a recipient of our technological expertise and not the other way around. And I think things are well, are beginning to change, but really they have to change. We're, we're not going to identify the cost-effective, affordable healthcare solutions that we need within the NHS by looking to countries that are actually suffering from the, exactly the same issues around rapidly escalating costs as we are. So, we need to look to countries that actually do more with less. Um, and these would be countries in, I think, South America and in Africa to a large extent. We might call them, many people call them frugal healthcare innovations. So, in innovations that tend to be much more affordable, but without scrimping on effectiveness or even safety. Uh, I think one of the important things to think about, though, is well, what are the reasons why we haven't traditionally been looking to some of those regions. And many many of us think of decolonizing as a really important part of the process to widening our gaze towards all regions of the world, wherever they might be. Cost-effective solutions could potentially be relevant from anywhere to anywhere. We shouldn't be focused predominantly on high-income countries, I don't think.
1: Matt, you mentioned that we're often referred to as the gold standard of healthcare. So I want to ask you, Nav, are we actually the gold standard? How do we stack up against other healthcare systems in the world?
2: That's a very difficult question to answer because I think there's a lot of work, uh, you know, particularly around the Commonwealth um, countries, looking at you know which countries have the best uh, best healthcare systems. Uh, and it, it's always very hard to compare like with like, particularly because you know our our, our healthcare system is tax funded. Uh, lots of other parts of the world, uh, the, the funding streams of healthcare come from a, a set of different, um, you know, financial models. Some of them sh- which may be insurance based, or uh, fee for service, or out of pocket payments, etc. So it's very very hard to compare. Uh, what i would say though is that as matt has been saying there is an awful lot of learning that we can take from other parts of the world and and not just those countries uh, for which there is a in my view perhaps a literature bias uh, around you know uh, the, the published literature from um europe and north america in particular and i think we've got to be much much more aware of the evidence that is emerging from other countries and i suppose if i was to fast forward 5 or 10 years and um, I suspect the impact of climate change uh, and and the kind of broader aspects of how we think about our our planet and the the planetary health issues perhaps would make it more important for us to learn from countries which are already trying to deal with some of those issues uh, and and, and kind of not be sort of afraid of uh, picking up and adopting some of the things that they're learning. I've been doing a little bit of work in India over the last uh, six months or so, and I'm... I'm really kind of uh, amazed by some of the the things that are happening, uh, particularly to tackle pollution, to try and improve um, the impact of communicable diseases, uh, as well as kind of using technology in the most amazing way. So I think there's a kind of sense that we do need to embrace the learning that's coming across, uh, uh, you know, from the whole world and not just those kind of countries for which there may be some literature bias.
1: And Matt, um, and I've mentioned India have you got any more trips planned to South Africa maybe to see some more um, different health systems and different health initiatives? I don't actually have
0: any, any uh, trips planned other than a family trip actually uh, in the next month back to Brazil, in fact, to visit the community where I used to work. But um, no, not, no, no trips planned at the moment. But I think Nav is absolutely spot on um referring to the indian example and i and i would suggest also that there are many other countries um ethiopia and malawi and um nigeria and uh, and rwanda some really really interesting examples uh, not just in terms of system um, models of care but also actual healthcare technologies as well that have been innovative that we could be learning from so um there's uh, there's a i think a definitely a growing movement to, uh, to 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 shift to shift this gaze there're increasingly we're finding repositories of innovations online with a specific focus actually of of what we what we call elevating the uh, complicated word, epistemological currency of innovations from from those countries because um by by promoting them and advocating for them, Um, we're, we're, if you you like, doing a a bit of a service to those innovations, which might otherwise be left a little bit unheard of in our context. So these repositories, these websites, such as the Centre for Health Market Innovations, um WHO puts out a report every now and again on healthcare technologies for low resource settings, uh, all really useful resources, I think, for us to refer to um, as um, cost effective solutions that we might not otherwise hear about.
1: You say that you both want this change. Where does this change need to come from? Do people need to stop or shift their gaze from the government? Does it need to come from individual health systems? How should we go about this if we are to get more from other health systems across the world?
2: Well, let me let me start by uh, uh, trying try to trying to kind of uh, answer that, uh, and Matt. Please feel free to uh, to kind of join in. So, so there's been some wonderful work by uh, a, a chap called uh, Professor Chris Bentley, who, who whose career I followed very strongly. and And Chris has worked in Africa and many parts of the world, uh, as well as been involved in in des, you know describing some interventions around uh, reducing health inequalities in this country as well. Uh, and what and what Chris says is that the impact has to happen at at, at all levels. And that, I know that sounds. Uh, you know, a fairly easy thing to say, but essentially, as we look at our our, our landscape, the, the landscape the NHS is facing at the moment, I think what we need are, are policies that happen at a national level, you know, that can really address some of the challenges that our our populations with suffering with the consequences of deprivation, uh, in particular, uh, you know, so, so national policy and also policies at the the level of integrated care systems, you know, that sort of population base. I think we've also got to start thinking about uh, how we when we talk about design work we design work around particular service lines or or particular um you know um, in, uh, kind of uh, population groups such as children and young people or older people or uh, or, or services for, uh, for pregnant mums and so on we've got to really start thinking about the impact that um, health creation in communities can have in, in in those particular service lines and then of course there's the the, the, the potential of really targeting particular neighborhoods, particular households, particular streets at a community level to so, so that we sort of join up uh, systematically or, all, of the, all of the kind of interventions at each of those three, three, uh, three levels. And I think without that, uh, we're going to end up with, you know, little schemes happening in little pockets rather than just really joining up, uh, you know, a concerted effort together to tackle some of the challenges uh, for for the people in our communities.
1: If this national change does happen, what do you ultimately think this scheme and schemes like it can achieve?
0: If we're talking, circling back to the community health worker piece, and if the community health worker piece scales nationally, then I think we're talking about a radical, in fact, paradigmatic shift in terms of the way primary care is delivered. Um, as a fundamental pu- piece of the public health workforce, something that we don't currently actually have. So the community health workers essentially would be the front door, if you like, to primary care, uh, providing entirely personalised, in the household, um, health and social care support for everybody all the time and just in time. So that proactive universal approach across all stages of the life course is a systematic unifying, integrating, uh, joined up way of working, which will bring all the existing services that we currently have, which sometimes operate a little bit disjointedly or a little bit difficult to navigate or leaving some people out when they shouldn't be or a bit duplicative from time to time. It'll support all of those services to work better together. Because households will be joined up into the system much, much more effectively. And that's exactly how they do it in Brazil. So I think there's the potential if it's if it's scaled nationally for the community health workers to actually have a really, really important impact on population health outcomes across the life course. Um, but in order to do that, I think we have to have sensible and joined up conversations nationally and locally around commissioning, shall we call it, solutions, funding solutions, where everybody Um, has a little bit of skin in the game. The community health workers aren't a primary care intervention only. They aren't a public health intervention only, even though they deliver a wide array of health promotion messages directly to the household. They aren't a social care service only, even though they identify unidentified issues of domestic violence and truancy and gang involvement and drug abuse and social isolation and housing problems. They are all of those things, but that makes it a very difficult thing to identify where does the funding come from? Who owns it? Where's the governance structure that supports it and who administers it? Um, and at the moment, even though it's scaling as now says into throughout Westminster and, and Kensington and Chelsea into Calderdale in Yorkshire, Bridgewater, near Liverpool, in Cornwall, in the Scilly Isles, all now with initiatives very much mirroring the Brazilian model. Um, We now need to actually have the next level conversation, which is how do we actually sustain this sort of um, transformation in the NHS so that it actually delivers the sorts of population health outcomes that we've seen in Brazil over the last 30 years. It has every potential to do so, but we have to, I think, start to embark on some of those joined up conversations.
1: Is that as well as, you know, changing attitudes, is that the main barrier for this to work, funding, do you think?
0: So there's a few different things I'd say, um, Nav, if I may just come in first. I'm sure you've got ideas as well. Oh. But the um, changing attitudes is important locally uh, with respect to the community health workers, right? So to begin with, we uh, before initiating the pilot, which which I should say was it largely due to the extraordinary efforts of Dr. Connie Jungans, who was working in Westminster along with um, the council and Saul Kaufman now through the primary care networks and many, many others. Um, the the fears at the time were that residents would be a bit antipathic, should we say, to having their neighbours knock on their doors and meddling in their business. Uh, that was the fear. But what turns out is that actually residents are really, really wel- welcoming this initiative. It's... Provides cohesion within communities that have been largely fractured. It improves relationships with the councils as well as with the GP practices that have been largely strained over the COVID years due to the difficulties of accessing care. Um, the community health workers really do help to join up the communities in a really significant way. So even though it takes a bit of time for community health workers to actually. Um, whilst they're knocking on doors and pounding the streets and and seeing who's at home and sometimes people aren't at home, it takes time to create that engagement. Once that engagement is secured through building that trusting relationship, it doesn't go away and there's no there's no discharge from a community health worker, right? If you're still living in the patch that they're looking after, they will come knock on your door for as long as you're living there. Um, You only don't have a community health worker if you move out of the area. So that longitudinality, that relationship building, that longevity, the trust building that comes with that is really, really important. So that's part of the changing hearts and minds piece. But then there's the changing hearts and minds and the culture from a funding point of view. And I think that's going to be really important nut to crack, because currently of the funding um, strategy ideologically that we have in the NHS and in social care and local authorities is that the funding follows the solutions to problems that we identify. They don't systematically um, they don't think about it in in a system sense, okay? And many of, the, many of the root causes of all the problems we identify in tertiary care, for example, late presentation of illnesses, et cetera, et cetera, the root causes are all the same. It's people not getting the right information at the right time, problems not being identified early on enough and not being supported to access care when they need it. And that's the same whether you're talking about immunizations, diabetes, hypertension, heart attacks, stroke, dementia, loneliness, whatever it might be, same issues everywhere. So it's about finding that changing hearts and minds also requires people to think a little bit more um, horizontally in terms of a funding solution and not vertically. And we've been traditionally been, I think, funding schemes that are easy to do but not necessarily the right thing to do because they're not actually cross-cutting schemes.
2: Can I just uh, come in on the back of that, um, um, if that's okay? Um, because you know, I think Matt Matt's made a really important point there about about sort of uh, you know, proper funding, a funding footprint, and sustainability of of, of these types of approaches. Uh, I I would say the other hearts and minds things is making sure that provider organisations, you know, as well as commissioners, really start to think about you know building this into any redesign work they are doing at whatever level. So if if, for example, uh, you're a hospital trust and you're concerned about your uh, A&E attendances and you're thinking about, you know, why is the demand going up and, you know, perhaps tracking back to where the demand is coming back, coming from in terms of, you know, which which particular parts of the geography and then start to think about how uh, community health worker models, uh, as Matt has described, can, can really start to have an impact at that sort of level. Uh, you know, you, you know, you could start to see a different model of care emerging, as opposed to just patching up the A&E front door, or or, or creating more uh, traffic lanes for, for for the demand to, to be channelled through. So, so I think we need co-creating health with people in our communities as a fundamental building block of any redesign work that happens anywhere in the system. Because without that, all we're doing is just patching up, uh, patching up all our front doors.
0: I add one thing. I think also, if I may, um, if you take as an example um, what we call frequent flyers, which isn't a great name, but people who attend a and a lot of times over the course of one year, let's say a dozen or more times in six months, um, interventions usually focus on those sorts of um, uh, people because they look like they are high need, high risk individuals. But that those won't have a that won't have a big impact on attendances at AE overall. The vast majority of people who attend A&E do so just because they didn't manage to get care when they needed it. So they pitch up at A&E. So to address the 95 percent of attendances at A&E rather than the 5 percent of high attenders, you've actually got to develop an intervention upstream that is completely universal so that people that might go to A&E on a once off basis actually get the support they need to avoid doing so. And that requires a a really significant joined up way of thinking in order to to consider how to do that. We think that community health workers is the solution for that because of its universal proactive deployment across small geographies over time, creating enduring relationships, spotting people in need in real time. And it really only be that that will result in improvements downstream in tertiary care whether it's attendances at A&E or admissions for almost anything at all that you can think of. So um, so I think the the changing the hearts and minds piece is all about how do we move away from targeted approaches for high-risk individuals or families to universal approaches for low-risk families, but that over time will have a far greater impact on population health outcomes. And this isn't new, Jeffrey Rose, the famous epidemiologist, <gasps> talked about this twenty years ago. Um, called it the prevention paradox, where people um if you if you provide an intervention to people of low risk of a disease, you actually have a much, much greater population health outcome overall. Um so really what we're talking about is an intervention in this way. It's how do you provide a universal intervention to people of low risk so that you have a greater bang for your buck over time. And Matt, can I just
2: add answer- you know, we don't want to lose focus of the impact of this potentially in primary care as well in terms of demand, as well as mental health services and, and community services and other parts of our system. So I think what, you know, whilst A&E is, is an important element of this, we need to make sure that this pension has impact across all those sectors. And we can see the evidence, I think, emerging, which demonstrates that. So that's why
0: it makes it such a
2: powerful model to get behind.
0: That's true, actually. So I hadn't mentioned yet, but in our small evaluation that we did in Westminster, we noticed that just with, again, four community health workers covering 600 households, per household, there was a 7% reduced attendance at GP practice, unscheduled appointments at GP at the GP practice compared to the previous year for the households that were visited compared to those that weren't. So a 7% reduction. Um, now, again, it's an early signal, but it's, we think, the thin end of the wedge you put in more community health workers and have them work for longer across small households and you're going to start to see a significant uh, improvement in capacity in primary care for the obvious reason. The community health workers are dealing with more problems outside of the clinic before they, before they pitch
1: up through the front door. And a big thank you to Matt and Al for joining me in the podcast today. You've been listening to the National Health Executive Podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe to make sure you receive
0: every new edition.